It's well documented that when it comes to survival, generally speaking, humans tend toward one of two spectrums or one of two ends of a spectrum, the fight or flight spectrum, right? Uh, Although in Jersey, I'm not sure who is on the flight side of the spectrum uh, yet. So, uh, but we we definitely have both in general, both instincts uh, we see in us as people where either when we're confronted with a threat, we want to fight, right? And so we want to take that aggressive posture and say, okay, you want to go? Let's go, right? And we dukes up. Hockey, we throw the gloves off. Let's go. We're going to get this done. Although in other cases, we might be more inclined to throw off the gloves and run for the locker room. <laughs> we might be inclined to run, to hide, to fight, or to fly, fly away and flight and live to fight another day. The interesting thing about fight and flight is that fear drives both of those responses. We're threatened, and so we're, gonna, we're, we're afraid of what's going to happen. So either we're going to remove the threat by taking it into our own hands— and fighting, or we're going to remove the threat by removing ourselves from the situation. We're just going to get out of dodge. The fact is, we all struggle with fight and flight, maybe in different circumstances in our lives. Why? Because we all face threats. Now, most of the time, they're not actually physical threats. Most of the time, they're of a variety of of sources or kinds. So we'll face a financial threat. We'll face an emotional threat. Maybe it's a threat in our social network. Maybe it's a threat about sickness or disease or something like that. Sometimes the threats that we're facing are very real and and legitimate. Sometimes, though, we make up threats and we imagine a threat and we kind of build one out of our imagination or what other people are going through. There's lots to fear in our world. So the question we have this morning as we get into this important narrative is, well, what about us? What is it that we might be afraid of? What is it that we might feel threatened about? Because in this passage this morning, we're going to see King Hezekiah and the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, right? The kingdom of Judah. We're going to see them under what was the greatest threat they could ever have possibly imagined. And King Hezekiah is going to lead Judah in their response. But as we watch how he responds, it will be a helpful exercise for us to think about, well, should we follow his example? How will I respond? How do I respond when I'm facing the different kinds of threats in my life? I would encourage you this morning, this morning to be specific about the kind of threat that you're facing right now. To think about it. What are you most afraid of? And then think about how we might respond in line with God's word. We pick it up in chapter 18, verse 13. And we really knew this was coming because... In many ways, uh, in chapter 17, there was this announcement that Assyria is, is coming. They've taken the northern kingdom into exile. And the fact was, it wasn't just the northern kingdom that deserved judgment. It was also the southern kingdom. And so Assyria, who God used to judge the northern kingdom, about 20 years after they took away the northern kingdom into exile, they came again for the southern kingdom. And this was under the reign of a guy named Sennacherib. Watch verse 13 here in Second Kings verse, or chapter 18, verse 13. There we read this. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Assyria's King Sennacherib attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So King Hezekiah of Judah sent word to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong, he said. Withdraw from me. Whatever you demand from me, I will pay. The king of Assyria demanded 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold from King Hezekiah of Judah. So... Hezekiah gave him all the silver found in the Lord's temple and in the treasuries of the king's palace. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the Lord's sanctuary and from the doorposts he had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Then the king of Assyria sent the field marshal, the chief of staff, and his royal spokesman, along with a massive army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They advanced and came to Jerusalem, and they took their position by the aqueduct of the upper pool, by the road to the launderer's field. They called for the king, but Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the court historian, came out to them. Now, if we just pause right here, this sets the scene for what's going on. The Assyrian juggernaut has now come for the southern kingdom. I just want to show you what this looks like pictorially so we can get a sense of the threat. So here is a picture of the Assyrian Empire at this time, 9th and 8th century BC. So massive, massive empire, world superpower, biggest on the planet at that time. 
And uh, they had come and taken the northern kingdom into exile, and now they came for the southern kingdom. And let me just zoom in, and I can show you how this impacted the southern kingdom here. So here's the Assyrian army, that one of the, the, the route that they took, and they're conquering. Um, mainly, they, they conquered the Philistines. They took care of, uh, of them to a point. And they're conquering all these towns, Philistine towns, but then also Israelite towns, or towns of Judah, uh, Beit Shemesh, uh, Azekah here. Um, here's Lachish. These are all Israelite towns in the, in the tribal territory of Judah. And so they've conquered basically everything. This event is well attested in uh, archaeology. Uh, the Assyrians bragged about all their victories. And there was a massive Assyrian siege at Lachish. It was a walled city. And so the Assyrian, uh, they had a huge temple, actually. And the whole, the whole temple was dedicated to the victory of this. Uh, they defeated um, the people of Lachish there. And so at that point, King Hezekiah is up here in Jerusalem and so he sends, uh, he, he sends a letter to the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, and uh, he says, um, basically, okay, you win. You've conquered all of Judah, essentially, except for Jerusalem. So what do you want? And I, this is exactly how it went down, okay? We know this pretty much from records. Sennacherib goes, what do you guys think? 11 tons. It was like 11 tons of silver, 10 tons. What, no, we need a rigged. Whatever you got, just give it, okay? Whatever you got. You pay me off and I'll go away. And by the way, that was normal, like operational procedure for ancient Near Eastern warfare. When you were defeated to preserve life and to protect the community, you would pay off the, the, the more powerful army who had been victorious over you. And then they would go away and maybe, maybe leave you alone. Just say, okay, you win. Send us a tribute taxes every year and we'll be good. So what does Hezekiah do? Well, he goes to the temple. And he went to the temple to strip it of what was valuable. So he takes the silver out of the temple and he takes the gold from the doorways and he has it all, you know, tw- taken down, melted, and they give it to the king of Assyria. And the thought is, okay, we'll take what had been dedicated to the Lord and we'll use it to buy our freedom. Now, some people think Hezekiah did this as an attempt to kind of stall and buy time, uh, but probably the authors of Second Kings want to present it to us as a caution. This wasn't the right tactic, and it didn't work. So he sends, you know, he sends all the money down. He, you know, he sends this massive payoff amount that he's stripped from the temple and then also from the royal treasury. And it's not, it's not even enough. And so the, the Assyrian king Sennacherib sends his, his lackeys to go and to continue the threat against Jerusalem. If we just pause here, we just need to acknowledge that when it comes to the judgment of God, and make no mistake, the Assyrians are there by God's hand. We learned that very clearly in chapter 17. When it comes to the judgment of God, we can't buy freedom from it. You can't buy your way out of this mess. There's no, there's no way to avoid the problem by financial means or really by any other means that we could create. And so we're confronted here with this moment where Hezekiah was threatened. And instead of going to the Lord initially, he goes to another source of help. And you might just ask the question this morning, is that me? When I'm threatened with all the different kinds of threats we face, when I'm threatened, do I go to the Lord or am I running somewhere else for help? Is it the finances that are going to fix the problem? Is it the politicians that got to make this right through their legislation, right? Is it the doctors that are going to fix everything, right? Is that what's going to solve the problem, right? We turn to all these other sources of help. And when we do that, but we haven't come to the Lord, well, we've actually cut off our source of provision. This was not, just in case we're curious, this was not the right use of the temple. It's not. And we know money can't buy us love, but it also can't buy us forgiveness or protection from God's judgment. Now, this threat was not going to be paid off. And man, this threat also had a mouth on it. You're about to hear and read one of the most epic moments of ancient or Eastern trash talk there ever was. Okay? Sennacherib sends these guys, and their job was to intimidate the people in Jerusalem. And so watch how this works. Look at verse 19. Then the royal spokesman, this is in chapter 18, right? Verse 19. Then the royal spokesman said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. What are you relying on? You think mere words are strategy and strength for war? You who, who are you now relying on so that you have rebelled against me? Now, if you pause, uh, Hezekiah had rebelled against the Assyrians. 
And he had done so as a function of his faith. At least that's what we found out in the beginning of the chapter. And so here, the, the Sennacherib is there. He sent the whole army. I mean, it's, he's like calling him right out. He goes, who do you think you're relying on? And there's a possibility he was relying on Egypt. Watch verse 21. Now look, you are relying on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of anyone who grabs it and leans on it. This is what Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is to all who rely on him. Suppose you say to me, well, we we rely on Yahweh, our God, the Lord, our God. But isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you must worship at this altar in Jerusalem? You notice there, Sennacherib, through his messengers, he's totally misunderstood Hezekiah's reforms. And he's like, oh, you're saying you're going to trust in your God? Didn't you just tear down all those worship sites? I mean, he's basically confronting them and and calling them out on, on this worship of God. Verse 23, he says, So now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. (laughs) I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to supply riders for them, which they were not. How then can you drive back a single officer among the least of my master's servants? How can you rely on Egypt for chariots or for horsemen? (laughs) Now, have I attacked this place to destroy it without Yahweh's approval? Yahweh said to me, attack this land and destroy it. So, they are coming full force against Jerusalem, against Hezekiah, and against the people. Uh, watch what, what the response is from Hezekiah's agents there. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to the royal spokesman, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak with us in Hebrew within earshot of the people on the wall. Okay, so the, so these guys from Assyria, agents of the king, they come and they're yelling all this stuff out. And uh, they're doing it in Hebrew. And so the king's advisors, now, they, the lingua franca, at least as far as international communication of the day, was Aramaic. So they're like, can you just keep it down a little bit? And let's just talk in Aramaic because we don't, this is official business. We don't really want, and of course, they've totally missed the fact that that's exactly what they're trying to do, is they're trying to intimidate the people. They want the people on the wall to, to hear it. And so they get a little sassy with it. Watch verse 27. But the royal spokesman said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words only to your master and to you? Hasn't he also sent me to the men who sit on the wall destined with you to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? The royal spokesman stood and called out loudly in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He can't rescue you from my power. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on the Lord by saying, certainly the Lord will rescue us. This city will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah. For this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. And surrender to me. Then each of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree. And each may drink water from his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. A land of grain and new wine. A land of bread and vineyards. A land of olive trees and honey. So that you may live and not die. But don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you. Saying the Lord will rescue us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they rescued Samaria from my power? Who among all the gods of the lands has rescued his land from my power? So will Yahweh the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? But the people kept silent. They did not answer answer him at all, for the king's command was, don't answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the court historian, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and reported to him the words of the royal spokesman. This is an all-out assault on faith in God. In ancient Near Eastern thinking, when nations were at war, their gods were at war. And so the Assyrians have a premise, a theological basis for their approach Sennacherib, through his messenger, says, I've beaten every other god. Name one god who stood up to me, to the Assyrian powerhouse, and has succeeded. There is none, he says. So don't let Hezekiah fool you and tell you, oh, trust the Lord. The Lord there in your Bible, it's all caps, right? Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in distinction from the Canaanite gods and goddesses. He says, don't let Hezekiah trick you into trusting God, saying the Lord will rescue us. It was an all-out attack. Notice the threat 
If you don't make peace with me, there will be a siege. Bad things will happen. You know, it's going to be really terrible. But if you come with me, and did you notice the description? I'll take you to a new promised land with grain and with olives and all the stuff. And you'll be slaves there, but it'll be in a nice place. You know, like it'll be, what do we get out of this? Well, let me just tell you, false gods make false promises. False gods make false promises. You know, Sennacherib and his lackeys, they're, they're half right because Hezekiah can't rescue them. And Egypt can't rescue them. Egypt is the broken reed. If you try to put your hand on it, it's going to cut right through your hand. Like, don't rely on Egypt. Okay, sure. And don't even rely on Hezekiah. Well, of course, Hezekiah can't rescue. But again, there's this attack on trusting God, on faith in God. And here's what you need to take away from this. If false gods are making false promises, and they are, you've got to know that when we doubt God, it's because we have false information about him. Okay, we're, we're really concerned today about misinformation. It's very political, by the way. What you believe is misinformation, what isn't, you know, misinformation. But false information, everybody wants to know. I just want the truth. Just tell me the truth. But doubting God in our lives happens when we have believed a lie. In, in this case, he says, don't let Hezekiah deceive you when he tells you to trust God. Because God can't deliver you from the king of Assyria. And I'm just going to tell you something right now. Brothers and sisters, you know it. But there are days in our lives when we believe God can't deliver me from, and then fill in the blank. God can't deliver me from the sickness. God can't deliver me from this financial crisis. God can't deliver me from this uh, embarrassing thing with my friends. God can't deliver me from this problem in my family. Whatever it is, God can't deliver me. And you need to know that that is a lie. You've believed the, the misinformation campaign. If there was such a thing, the Assyrian army would have flown over and dropped those leaflets in Hebrew. You know, telling them, don't trust Hezekiah and don't trust Yahweh. He can't save. What are the lies that you may be believing this morning? Broadly speaking, our culture will tell us God doesn't exist. He's not the creator of the universe. There is no creator. Or they'll say, even if God does exist, he certainly doesn't care what you do on Friday night. He doesn't care what you're involved in and your finances, how you handle your taxes. He doesn't care how you treat your spouse. He doesn't care how you deal with your kids or how you handle your parents or how you behave at school. God doesn't care about any of that stuff. Or maybe it's a different kind of a lie about God. Where people might say, well, God does care. and He's very angry with you. And he's only angry with you. He doesn't love you. Look at you. Who could love you? He doesn't love you. He just wants to judge you. He just wants to drop the hammer of judgment on you. Those are lies, aren't they? Half-truths, right? False gods make false promises. And then the false gods will say, don't trust the Lord, but I'll give you this. Look at the land I can take you to. And whatever you might substitute instead of the Lord, where you're going to go for help, the money, right, the, the, the political resources, whatever it is, right, whatever source of help we're trying to find, and then that source will make promises and say, oh, look what I can give you. If you have money, I can give you this. And if you have the right party in power, we can give you that. And if you would just trust this, then you can this. And see, if you just rely on this, then this is what you'll get out of it. And they're making promises to give you things that God has already promised to give you. The difference is God can actually deliver on his promise. So false gods make these false promises. There's a, 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 a full, like, open-air attack here on faith in God from the Assyrians. Don't trust Hezekiah and don't trust the Lord. Where do we go from here? Watch chapter 19, verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the Lord's temple. The Lord's temple that he had previously pillaged for silver and gold. He sent Eliakim, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, the leading priests, who were covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, 
Now, here's the deal. We get introduced here to the fact that Isaiah is on the scene. You know Isaiah because uh, we have Isaiah, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, 66 chapters of glory, okay, in Isaiah. So he, he served through the reign of previous kings before Hezekiah, then also through Hezekiah's reign. And Hezekiah, or Isaiah's job was to give the word of God to the people of Judah and to the king of Judah, who right now is Hezekiah. And so Isaiah is at the temple where the priests are, and everybody's mourning because they're toast. They all know they're toast. It's obvious they're toast. There is no practical way in reality that they can be saved uh, in this circumstance. But nonetheless, Hezekiah is out of options. And so he comes to the right place and he comes to the right person. He comes to Isaiah. They said to him, verse 3, This is Hezekiah's messengers speaking to Isaiah the prophet. This is what Hezekiah says. Today is a day of distress, rebuke, and disgrace. For children have come to the point of birth, but there is no strength to deliver them. That's a metaphor to say, it's bad. We got, we're we're out. We we have no strength to help us. We got one last hope though. Verse four, perhaps Yahweh, your God, will hear all the words of the royal spokesman whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God and will rebuke him for the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the surviving remnant. You see, Hezekiah's servants go to Isaiah and they say, we got nothing. We have no military recourse. We have no treaty. There's no other source of help. But but maybe the Lord will hear. And maybe the Lord will hear what this king has said in his mockery of God. Maybe God will hear and he'll respond. So Isaiah, will you pray? So verse 5, the servants of King Hezekiah went to Isaiah, who said to them, Tell your master, Yahweh says this. The Lord says this. Don't be afraid because of the words you have heard. With which the king of Assyria's attendants has, have blasphemed me. I am about to put a spirit in him. He will hear a rumor and return to his own land where I will cause him to fall by the sword. The prophet speaks for God. And so Isaiah here in answering Hezekiah's uh, you know, emissaries, Isaiah says, here's the deal. Don't be afraid. Now listen, just between us, on a scale of one to 10, if they're like, a scale of times when you should be afraid. This was an 11. <laughs> okay. This was the, 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 yes, we should be afraid. There are no other towns around that are, have resisted Assyria. Literally the rest of Judah has been conquered. So yes, we should be afraid. If there was a time for panic buying, this was the time for that because they got nothing. Like this is it. It's all, it's it. That's all we've got. And the prophet speaks the word of God. And what is the word of God to us when we are under threat? The word of God is, don't be afraid. Everybody else is afraid. And inside you're feeling, I should be afraid. All you see are the threats. All you see are the what ifs. And God says, don't be afraid. Because of what he said, blaspheming me, God says. Oh yeah, I heard that. In Aramaic or Hebrew. It didn't matter. God says, I heard it. And God says to Hezekiah through Isaiah, don't be afraid. Now, why do we fear? Well, we fear again because we've believed lies. We've doubted the character and the promises of God. How can Isaiah say that? Don't be afraid. Doesn't he know? Like, he hasn't, he's been, it's only been 20 years. They all knew what happened in the northern kingdom. And it's only been the immediate, you know, just a few days prior as the rest of Judah had fallen. Doesn't Isaiah know? What does he know that everybody else doesn't know? What information does he have access to that everybody's forgetting? And Isaiah gives the word of God, which is based on the character of God and the promises of God. And so Isaiah says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. We fear again because we believe lies about God. He can't deliver. He won't deliver. We fear because we doubt his character, that he can work through difficult circumstances. We doubt his promises, that he said he'll provide for us what we need. But sometimes we value our plan over his plan. And that's why we fear. God, my plan doesn't have us going through this trial right now. And so I don't want to deal with this. And I'm afraid of what's going to happen. And I don't really trust you. I trust my plan rather than your plan. 
right? And so we, we have that kind of topsy-turvy way of looking at the universe. And this is a moment when Hezekiah and the people of Judah are, are being humbled to a place where their only recourse is to trust God. Can I just tell you that when you're in those places, that's not a place of loss and defeat. That is a place of spiritual victory. When we finally are to the place where we say, I got nothing. Lord, I'm entirely dependent on you. Isaiah says, don't be afraid. I wonder this morning if you're afraid of something. If that fear is keeping you up at night. If it's giving you anxiety during the day. Again, be specific. You need to to call it out for what it is. And maybe you need the word of God from Isaiah this morning. Don't be afraid. God knows what they said. God knows what you're going through. God knows what could happen or what might happen, and God knows what will happen. And he is trustworthy because he's not a made-up God of wood and stone. He is the God who is. So Isaiah says, don't be afraid. Now listen, that's kind of like phase one, and then the whole cycle is going to repeat because false gods are tenacious. And this attack goes on. Watch verse 8. When the royal spokesman heard that the king of Assyria had pulled out of Lachish, he went and found him fighting against Libna. That's also very close to Jerusalem. I'm not going to show you the map, but it's, it's close. The, the king had heard concerning King Terhaka of Cush, look, he has set out to fight against you. So he sent, again, messengers to Hezekiah saying, say this King Hezekiah. So pause right there, verse 9. So what happens is he's heard about a, a threat coming from Egypt, southern Egypt, Cush. And so there's this uh, attack that's coming. So uh, Sennacherib has gone away to deal with that, but there's also the armies there at Libna. The point is the threat hasn't gone anywhere, but Sennacherib isn't there. And so in, in verse 10, though, he sends a last parting gift of ancient Near Eastern trash talk against Hezekiah and against the Lord. Verse 10, this is what, again, Sennacherib's servants say. Say this to King Hezekiah of Judah. Don't let your God on whom you rely, right, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Now he's not saying don't listen to Hezekiah. He's saying don't listen to God. Don't listen to God. I know what he said, but don't don't listen to what he said. Look, verse 11, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries. They completely destroyed them. Will you be rescued? (laughs) Did the gods of the nations that my predecessors destroyed rescue them? Nations such as Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the Edenites, and Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hena, or Iva? One more last round where the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, says, don't let God deceive you. I just want to tell you this morning that Satan will argue that God has lied to you. He did it in the garden. With Adam and Eve, did God really say? Oh, well, God's pre- trying to prevent you from good things. That's why God gave you that, that law. God's trying to prevent you from something. He's trying to keep you from the good stuff. And so Satan has argued over and over again, culture to culture, time to time, doesn't matter. He's argued God lies to you. When God says he'll provide for you, when God says he'll lead you through that, when God says even if that bad thing happens, you'll be okay, Satan says, God has lied to you, so don't let him deceive you. Now, what does that lie look like today? God can't fulfill you if you, whatever, right? God can't give you peace without money. That's what Satan says. Or or God can't bless your family without that house or that car, that job, those grades. God can't rescue you from depression. God can't deliver you from that addiction. God can't bless you and and fulfill you if you reserve sex for marriage. God can't do that. God has lied when he said he'll provide for you in all those those different ways. God's lying. Don't trust him. Don't believe him. And then there's that question. Will he rescue you? Sennacherib asks. It was a rhetorical rhetorical question. And of course, the expected answer would have been no. No. But maybe the authors of Kings just want us to think about that a little bit. Will he rescue you? Again, I don't know what you're afraid of this morning. I don't know what what threat you're facing. But will he rescue you? Can he? Watch verse 14. Hezekiah took the letter. All that was in the form of a letter. Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands. He read it. 
and then went up to the Lord's temple. Hey, we're back to the temple again, aren't we? And he spread it out before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. Yahweh, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but made by human hands, wood and stone. Yeah, so they have destroyed them. Now, Yahweh our God, please save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Yahweh, are God, you alone. This is, I think, one of the most uh, profound prayers in the Bible, where Hezekiah, in a moment of absolute dependence on God alone, begs God to rescue. We need to note carefully how he prays. Because his prayer is built on the character of God in a couple of key components. Why does he pray like this? Well, because our hope is actually built on the character of God. First of all, he acknowledges that God alone reigns over all the nations of the earth. Again, the ancient or Eastern model was God's had their territories. But the God of Israel, he's actually the real deal. And so Hezekiah prays and acknowledges that God, you alone, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are actually sovereign over Israel, yes. Over Judah, yes. And over Assyria, yes. And so sometimes we forget that God has jurisdiction over whatever that threat is we're facing. Is God sovereign over your finances? Yes, he is. The markets? Yes, he is. Is he the sovereign God over our bodies and our physical health? Yes, he is. Is he sovereign over the politics of our day and age and all the negotiations that go on behind the scenes and all the legals, you know, wrangling here and there and the Supreme Court and all the elections? Yes, he is. He's sovereign over it all. Is he sovereign over your family? Even as you're going through challenges as a family? Yes, he is. Is he sovereign over your school? You bet he is. Is he sovereign over the relationships we have with friends? Yes, he is. And in this moment, Hezekiah just says, God, I just have to say it out loud. You are, you alone are sovereign. And he says, you're the creator, which means he has the right to be sovereign. That's an important point. It's not just that he has authority. It's that he has the right to that authority because he created everything. And guess what? God knows when he asks God to open his ears and open his eyes, lend an ear, listen closely, it's not that God hasn't heard. He's saying, God, pay attention to this, to this act of mockery and engage. It's appropriate for us to ask God to rescue us when we're struggling. He acknowledges the false gods of the other nations were just that, false gods. Again, our hope is based on the character of God, and it's important for us in prayer to acknowledge that maybe what we're trusting in or what we're tempted to trust in isn't the real deal, right? That we might be trusting in that, but we shouldn't trust in that because it's just a false God. And then notice it's so important. He asks in verse 19 for God to save them, but he doesn't say, Lord, save Jerusalem for, for its glory as a beautiful city or save Jerusalem because of the temple. Or save Jerusalem because of our families and children. Lord, the children are going to suffer. Save Jerusalem for the children. He doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't say save Jerusalem for my reign as king. He specifically says this, and it's so important. He says, now, Lord, our God, please save us from his power. Why? So that all the kingdoms of the earth may know what? That you, Lord, are God, you alone. Shorthand here, God, save us for your glory. Save us so that everybody else will look at what happened and go, what happened? God happened. God intervened. 
The God of Israel is different than the gods of Assyria or Babylon or Moab or Ammon or Egypt or wherever. The God of Israel is different. Look at what he has done to deliver his people. Look at his greatness on display in his rescue of us. And Hezekiah, he's finally where he needs to be. On his knees at the temple. Not stripping it for gold and silver. But begging God to act for his glory. You want to know where God wants you? This is where he wants you. He wants you on your knees, reliant on him for provision. He wants you on your knees, looking to him to provide and to rescue. So what happens? Verse 20. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what it says. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I have heard your prayer to me about King Sennacherib of Assyria. Now just pause, okay? What we're about to read is uh, basically God answering the trash talk of Sennacherib with his own. And his is the real deal and he backs his up. Okay, so watch what happens. Verse 21. This is the word the Lord has spoken against him, against Sennacherib. Virgin daughter Zion despises you and scorns you. Daughter Jerusalem shakes her head behind your back. The language there is meant to say this. You won't touch this daughter. Nope. You won't touch Jerusalem. He's touched every other city. You won't touch this one. Verse 22. Who is it you mocked and blasphemed? Against whom as you have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. You picked the wrong fight, Sennacherib. Verse 23, you have mocked the Lord through your messengers. You have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I cut down its tall cedars, its choice cypress trees. I came to its farthest outposts, its densest forests. I dug wells and drank water in foreign lands. I dried up all the streams of Egypt with the soles of my feet. Have you not heard? I designed it long ago. I planned it in days gone by. I have now brought it to pass. And yes, you have crushed fortified cities into piles of rubble. Their inhabitants have become powerless, dismayed, and ashamed. They are plants of the field, tender grass, grass on the rooftops, blasted by the east wind. But I know you're sitting down, you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you're raging against me and your arrogance have reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you go back the way you came. This is the word of the Lord about Sennacherib. The greatest king living on earth at that time. God says, you think you did all that because you're awesome? God says, I wrote this script, man. I, I, long ago, I planned this. And now you've taken it too far. You have taken it to the point of mocking me and blaspheming me. And so guess what, King Sennacherib? You are my horse. And what am I going to do? I'm going to stick my hook in your nose, my bit in your mouth, and I'm going to ride you right back to Assyria from whence I brought you. That's, that's the word of God against Sennacherib. This is what's happening. This is what I'm about to do. What does that mean for Hezekiah and Judah, though? Verse 29, this will be the sign for you. This year you will eat what grows on its own. That's like just what's already there, you know, the, the remnants of what had already been there because they weren't able to plant. But in the second year, what grows from that? But then in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Make plans. That vacation to Disney, book it. Okay, you're going to be here. It's going to be good. You will be blessed in this land. I will deliver you from this Sennacherib and his raving against me. Verse 30, the surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For a remnant will go out from Jerusalem and survivors from Mount Zion. How? The zeal of Yahweh of armies, the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Why will we survive? Because God has purposed to rescue us. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city. He will not shoot an arrow here, come up here with a shield, or build a siege ramp against it. He will go back the way he came. He will not enter this city. This is the Lord's declaration. Furthermore, I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake, he says, and for the sake of my servant David. God says, I will rescue it for my glory, and because my glory is at stake, because I promised David. And so God says, that's why I will defend Jerusalem. So what happened? Verse 35. That night, 
the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, the army got up. Well, there were all the dead bodies. They woke up and their army was dead. So King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. Then his son Esarhaddon became king in his place. What are you supposed to take out of that? God was true to his word. First of all, he miraculously delivered the kingdom of Judah from Sennacherib through the angel striking dead the army. And so Sennacherib turns, he has to go, he, break, he has to go home. So he, he runs back home. It was actually 20 years later when his sons killed him in the, in the temple of his God. But once again, that was in fulfillment to the word God had spoken against him through the prophet Isaiah. If the question of the passage was, will God rescue Hezekiah? Will God rescue Jerusalem? Will God rescue Judah? The answer is emphatically, yes, he will. The key thing we need to learn this morning is how he does it. God saves how? By means of faith. And why? For his glory. God saves by means of faith, putting us in a situation where we finally realize we can only trust in him for deliverance. And why does he do that? He does that for his glory. God saves by means of faith for his glory. Now, here's the deal. The temple is a big part of this narrative, actually. It's an important place, and it plays a significant role. Because not only had Hezekiah responded wrongly in the temple by stripping it and trying to save himself, that didn't work, right? So there's a message there for us. But then in the two scenes where he does go to the temple later, it's actually good. He sends the emissaries, and yes, they go to Isaiah, and they hear the word of God, the promise of deliverance. And then later, Hezekiah himself goes, and finally in the temple, he's doing what he's supposed to do. But do you remember all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 8, way back when Solomon dedicated this very temple, he prayed, and in the prayer, he asked God in 1 Kings 8, 33 and 34, he asked God, when we're defeated, right, and, and when your people come to you and they pray in this temple for deliverance, or they pray even toward this temple for deliverance, hear their prayer. God, and rescue them. And so finally, Hezekiah does what they should have done all along, was get on their knees in the place where God has provided protection for them, right? In the atonement of sacrifice in the temple, get in that safe place in that temple, get on your knees and beg God to rescue. That's the whole point. That's one of the main reasons the temple was built for this purpose. And finally, Hezekiah does it. And what does God do? He says, You're asking me to save for my glory? Yes, I will do it. It's not not a leap at all to see this temple in the passage pointing us very clearly to the greater son of David who doesn't go to the temple to pray and ask for help. Jesus goes to the temple to become the temple. He is both the replacement for the priestly system. He's the great high priest who makes the sacrifice for the people, but he also was the sacrifice itself. He was was the basis. It was his death on our behalf that accomplishes what? Rescue and deliverance. And so sometimes in life, both in salvation and otherwise, we think, I can do it on my own. And maybe you're here this morning or you're watching this message and you're thinking, you know what? That's me. I've been trying to earn forgiveness. I've been trying to make my own way out of this problem. I've been stripping the temple and selling the gold and the silver and trying to buy my salvation. But the fact is we cannot accomplish what Jesus himself has done for us. Again, God saves by means of faith, by means of faith in his mediator. And he sent his son to do that work. Why? For his glory. Maybe today's the day, the first time you would actually turn to Jesus in faith. Maybe you're finally at that place where you would just throw your hands up and say, God, I got nothing. And God says, now we're talking. Now let's go. Because I have given you in Christ everything. He's paid for your sin. He's promised to make provision for you in the future. And I know whatever the promises the other gods are making, he says, trust me, what I will give you is better. So turn to me in faith. Repent of your sin and trust in me. God saves sinners for his glory by faith in Jesus' mediatorial work. He does it to show his greatness. Practically, not just speaking about salvation, but in the day-in, day-out struggle of our lives, 
we have to get to a place where we're willing to get on our knees and say, God, you rescue in this circumstance. And that doesn't mean we don't seek practical solutions to problems. But it means we seek those solutions underneath the sovereignty and provision of God. And God may be pleased to provide for us in good health care. And God may be pleased to provide for us through a bonus at work. And God may be pleased to provide for us in strong family relationships and all of that. But when those things break down, they do not nullify his goodness and his character. And so when medicine can't solve the problem, and when your finances do run out, and when we're facing some kind of trial, and I don't know what it's going to be for you, but it's going to be one where you go, I didn't see this coming, and I just can't see a way out of it. God's character hasn't changed. And so we just say, God, please rescue and redeem for your glory. And he'll do it to show his greatness. And if he chooses not to, this is crucial, if he chooses not to, he also does that to show his greatness. So there's a reason why. Because yes, God has delivered Judah here in 2 Kings 19. But before we're done with the book, Judah will be taken into exile. And why will God allow that? He will allow it for his glory to show his greatness, even as he rescues them after they've been taken out of the land. I just wonder if we're finally to a place where we will trust the Lord, where we will rely on God for daily provision where we will see that the best place we can be is in absolute dependence on him. Because God saves, he does. He saves by means of faith. Why? To show his greatness. You know, there might be an opportunity here to repent over us making our greatness the biggest focus of our lives. Sometimes we get caught up and it's just for us. It's just for me. Lord, help, help me to succeed in school for me. Help this business to, to succeed for me. Help this family to succeed for me. And frankly, that kind of worldview, it's always going to leave you flat because we're not that great. But when we can finally get on board with God acting for his glory, then we'll finally get a taste of what we were created for. To see God at work in our lives and to see his deliverance, to see his, his times when he chooses not to deliver us, but he, he sees us through a trial, to see all of that as it ultimately shows his greatness. And in the end, we will be provided for. Why? Because Jesus didn't just die for our sins because he rose from the dead. And so we look forward to the resurrection. And guess what? The new Jerusalem, so much better than Assyria. <laughs> I mean, he was all bragging about the grain and the... Listen, I'm just telling you, you can't beat it. And that's what we look forward to. So will we trust him? Will we trust him today? This event uh, that we read about this morning in 2 Kings, this event is one of the most well-attested, archaeologically speaking, one of the most well-attested events in the Bible where we have a boatload of archaeological information. I know you're psyched about this. I'm psyched about it. (laughs) Why do you care that... Sennacherib made a record of all his campaigns. By the way, the Assyrians are kind of like uh, kids. They only recorded the good stuff. They never recorded any of the bad stuff that happened, right? So the Assyrian kings would make these records of their victories, and they would put them on these monuments. And so some of them are big, some of them are are medium-sized, some of them are smaller. But they would be records of all their their victories. Wouldn't you know it that there is a thing called, that archaeologists have found, it's called the prism of Sennacherib. Pastor Ryan, what does it look like? Let me show you. Yes. (laughs) We have it. This is, this is a much younger me, uh, but this is the picture I have, so don't sweat it. Okay. Uh, I was taller, too. Anyway, was, um, so this is, the, this is the prism of Sennacherib, okay? The record of his reign and his accomplishments, especially this particular campaign. You can't read that. That's Akkadian. But what's on there about this particular moment, that, I kid you not, this is absolutely true, okay? This is what it says about Hezekiah. Sennacherib writes for the record books, As for Hezekiah, king of Judah, I shut him up like a bird in a cage. Which was the best way he could say, I didn't touch him. We know the rest of the story. Now, why does it matter that this really happened? It really matters because it reminds us that God's word is true. And what Isaiah said as the prophet was the very word of God, and it did come to pass. So the question is, does he rescue And the answer is, yes, he does. The next question is, will we trust him? And that's the question we have to ask, even as we leave this morning. Will we trust him? Would you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you for 
just this powerful passage of Scripture. There's a lot here for us to digest. Lord, we recognize the lies, lies about you. That sometimes, Lord, we hear from those around us. And Lord, sometimes we hear from inside of us. We're tempted to doubt your trustworthiness. We're tempted to doubt your character, Lord, and doubt your promises. So we ask that you would help us this morning to see those doubts for what they are. They're built on lies. Lord, we come to you as people who are frail. We face many threats and we, are, we have reason to fear on the one hand. But Lord, on the other hand, you have told us because of who you are not to be afraid. And Lord, the big question this morning is not are you faithful? The big question is will we trust you? We thank you for this moment where you just proved beyond a shadow of a doubt, even with not just the record in your word, but Lord, also with the confirming evidence outside of your word, just to remind us and to teach us and to show us that, yes, you are God alone. You are sovereign over all of this earth. You created it. And Lord, you are sovereign over us. Lord, I do pray for those who have never trusted in you for salvation. I pray that they would see there's a much bigger agenda item than personal happiness or personal success that you are rescuing sinners every day for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would bring them to a place where they're finally ready to kneel and to rely on you alone for forgiveness. But Lord, we also recognize the challenge for believers each day is to live life in this state of dependence on you. Lord, help us to remember that you are at work for your glory. When you provide for us, And Lord, when you send us through trials and difficulties, Lord, help us not to run to false gods. Help us not to be overcome by fear and despair, but help us to, in confidence built on faith, help us to trust in you because you are good. And Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we don't have to go to the temple anymore for this prayer, but that you have become the temple that you died for our sins and rose from the dead, and by faith in you we are forgiven, and by faith in you we are provided for. And we look forward to that ultimate deliverance when we rise in the resurrection and we enjoy eternity forever with you. But for now, Lord, we ask that you would help us to leave here trusting you. And we pray these things in Jesus' your name. Amen.